Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a sermon called How to Argue About Politics. Here's Dr. Tom Goodman. In a piece for RNS that was published last Saturday, Peggy Waymire wrote about how she became a Christian when she was on the UT campus back in the 1970s as a, as a journalism major. And ever since, she's tried to align the convictions she knows about the kingdom of God with the uh, statements from the various political parties down through the years. And she says that uh, as this election comes up, she looks at uh, convictions on both sides of the two major political parties, and she's attracted to certain things, and yet she's repelled by other things in the platform or in the candidates that have been put forward. And she tries to raise this dilemma, this challenge the, that she has within herself with her various family members and friends who are on both sides of the political divide. And she said, as lethal fights over political differences break out in our city streets, it seems my circle of family and friends are digging in against their opponents, turning blind eyes to the poisons of their own parties. Caught in the middle, I feel paralyzed between two alternate realities about the only thing we can all agree on is if the other side wins, the wheels are coming off the bus. We are in the middle of probably one of the most contentious political seasons in my adulthood. And so for guidance, I always turn to the uh, words and the example of Jesus, and I want us to do so today as well. How do we talk about politics? Well, how did Jesus talk about the most divisive political issue of his day? In this passage that Denise read to us, we discover three things about how to talk about politics. Write these down on your sermon notes in your online bulletin or on just a sheet of paper that you have near you. First of all, don't view politics simplistically. Don't view politics simplistically. In this passage, uh, Jesus refused to give a simplistic answer to a complex question. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, the tax that they were talking about was the imperial tax. It was basically a, a census tax. It was a single denarius, basically a one day's wage for a working man, and it was required of every adult male in Judah once a year. Now, this was despised by faithful Jewish people. It was despised for one reason, because it was a constant reminder that they were under foreign occupation at the time. It was also despised because it was a way of paying for that foreign occupation. But it was especially despised because it was idolatrous. On the coin was the image of Tiberius Caesar. And uh, there, there were also the words, Tiberius Caesar, high priest, son of God. And so it was an idolatrous thing for a Jewish man to have to handle this thing and to carry it around. As somebody uh, said in one of my commentaries, it was a portable idol. And so these Herodians and these Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, it's either or Jesus, what should we do about this? Should we pay this poll tax or shouldn't we? And again, notice who asked this tax question, the Pharisees 
and the Herodians. The Pharisees were the populists of the day. They hated the Roman occupation and they despised the puppet king, the Jewish puppet king Herod that the Romans had put over their area. On the other hand, the Herodians, you can just hear in the name, were loyal to Herod. There were persons who decided it was best to go along and get along. They were the persons who uh, thought that, um, that the best thing to do was to just try to figure out how to adjust themselves to Rome. Uh, it wasn't better for the rank and file people. It wasn't better for holiness, but it was better for their status quo. It was better for the uh, stability of their wealth and their power and, and their position. And, and so the Herodians and the Pharisees, polar opposites, come to Jesus at the same time with the same question, the hottest political issue of the day. And they want him to answer it to both of them in front of all the people. It's either or, Jesus. Which one is it? Should we pay this tax or not? Now, in their minds, they had set up an impossible situation for Jesus. If he said, pay it, then he would be looked upon by the people as a collaborator and all his talk about an alternate kingdom that he was bringing in would be regarded as just empty words. On the other hand, if he said don't pay it, he would be regarded as somebody who was an enemy of Rome. But Jesus refused this simplistic way of looking at this complex question. And we need to make sure that we aren't overly simplistic when we deal with complex political questions today as well. For all practical uh, purposes, we are a two-party political system in the United States. Now, I know I'm immediately going to get some email or text from several friends of mine who tell me they're members of the Libertarian Party. Uh, In the last election, I had a friend of mine who voted in the Constitution Party. I myself have occasionally been attracted to some of the platform of the Solidarity Party, so I know there are other parties out there. But for all practical purposes, we are a two-party political system in the United States. And what that means is that every one of us have to walk into the voting booth making a cold calculation as we vote. We have to determine that there are certain issues that are so important to us that we will make them paramount over other things about a party or a candidate that we wish was otherwise. Now, if that's the case, if we acknowledge that there are certain things that we wish were otherwise about a candidate or a party, then we can never as Christians say, this party is God's party. This candidate is the only candidate a good, faithful Christian could support because we acknowledge that there are things that we wish were otherwise about whatever party we're in or whatever candidate we support. You know, I've always been intrigued by that conversation recorded in Joshua chapter 5 between Joshua and the angel of the Lord. In Joshua chapter 5, it's during the conquest of the promised land, right on the night before they're going to take over Jericho. And we read in verses 13 and 14, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Now that's how the angel of the Lord spoke to the one chosen by God to conquer the promised land then how much more do you think the angel of the Lord would say that to us if we came to him and said, which political party is God's party? Which political candidate is God's candidate? Neither, 
the angel would say, I am the commander of the Lord's army. The enemies of Jesus demanded a binary either-or answer from Jesus. He refused to answer a complex question with a simplistic answer, and we who follow Jesus need to do that as well. But now that doesn't mean we shouldn't join a a particular political party. It doesn't mean we shouldn't support a particular political candidate. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't run for office ourselves. When Jesus was asked about the most contentious political issue of his day, not only did he refuse to approach it simplistically, but he also refused to approach it, uh, approach it cynically. And that's the second thing that I want you to write down. Don't view politics cynically. Some of us may be tempted to give up on politics. We've seen the acrimony We've seen the ugly, ugly words. We've seen people walk away angry and frustrated at each other, and we've been then tempted to walk away from the political process. But did you notice in this passage that when Jesus was asked a question about the most divisive issue of his day, he didn't duck the question. Here's how he answered it, or at least in part. He said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And by saying that, what Jesus was doing was, he was, he was unhitching his followers from any particular country or any particular political approach. What he was doing was he was saying, whatever country you are a citizen of, I expect you to be a good citizen of that country. If you are a Chinese woman who is a Christian, you are to be a good citizen of China. If you are a Pakistani man who is a Christian, you're to be a good citizen of Pakistan. If you are a, an American citizen you're, and who is a Christian, you're to be a good citizen in the United States of America. Jesus was expecting his followers to be good citizens of Rome. Now, Rome wasn't a Christian nation, not by any stretch. In fact, it wasn't very long after this conversation Jesus had with his enemies that it was Rome, the Roman Empire itself, that nailed Jesus to the cross. And yet, Jesus knew the, uh, the entire biblical worldview, and that is that any government, however imperfect, is better than no government. Any government is better than anarchy. And so, however imperfect a government may be, it's on this earth in God's common grace to make sure that order is upheld and justice is, justice is maintained, as imperfect as that so often can be, whichever government it is, whichever country it is. And so Jesus says it is our responsibility as citizens to, to uh, be part of that process and to be citizens of the country that he has placed us in. He tells us in this passage in Mark chapter 12 that we're to comply with that government, but we know from the rest of the Bible that we are to not just comply with that government, we are to participate in that government if given an opportunity. We have examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of believers who are involved with or even involved within pagan Roman governments. So we have Joseph in the Old Testament who rises to second in command under Pharaoh himself over the Egyptian government. And then we have Daniel who is a high counselor to the king of Babylon. And then we have this interesting thing in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 16, verse 23, Paul writes from Corinth to the, to the Roman Christians, and at the end he sends various greetings. And in Romans 16, 23, he says, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, sends greetings. So isn't that interesting that right there within the earliest church, there were persons who had high office in the civic government of a pagan government, 
and, 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 and Paul didn't tell Erastus to leave that government position. He, he, he sent greetings to him even as he was serving in that way. And that's very consistent with what we find in the earliest part of the New Testament in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, among those who came to John the Baptist for repentance and baptism were soldiers. And they said, what should we do? Now, if Christians were not to participate in pagan governments, if Christians were not to participate in the military of pagan governments, wouldn't that be a perfect place for John the Baptist to say, it's time for you to lay down your sword and spirit and leave that position because Christians have no position to be in government or in the military, but that's not what he said. When he was asked in Luke chapter 3, what should we do? He said to these soldiers in verse 14, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. In other words, stay with what you're doing, just make sure you do it honorably, make sure you do it well. These are all examples of believers who are not just complying with pagan governments, they were working within pagan governments. And so obviously the Bible and the biblical worldview tells us that we have that right and maybe even responsibility as citizen Christians to do the same thing. We follow the marching orders that Jeremiah, or that God gave through Jeremiah to the people in Babylonian exile. In, Jer in Jeremiah chapter 29, this was after Babylon had come in to destroy Jerusalem, to demolish the temple of God, to take the best and brightest citizens and carry them off into exile. And what was the command that God gave those exiles? He said in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. What city? The city, the culture that came in and demolished Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Seek the peace and prosperity of that city into which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Those marching orders are still ours today. We're to seek the peace and prosperity of the culture God has placed us in. We're to pray to the Lord for it. And when we are in a democracy, that means also that we have an opportunity to have our voice heard in what we believe is the best way to seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which we are exiles. In Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah comes into... Um, Jerusalem, and this was after the Babylonian exile, and they're allowed to return back and start rebuilding. And Nehemiah has, get, has been given a huge role in kind of reestablishing uh, Jerusalem. And one of the things that caused him such dismay was to find out how very quickly the rich and powerful, and they held government positions, were overwhelming the poor and the vulnerable in the land of God. And so when Nehemiah saw this, we find in verses 6 and 7, I was very angry when I heard this. So after thinking about it, I spoke out against these rich government officials. There's a time for us to do that. Uh, even if we don't have the position that Nehemiah had, if we're in a democracy, our voice can speak out for those who are poor, for those who are vulnerable, for those who are powerless. We have the opportunity to do that so that we might seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which God has called us. Christ's followers are not to withdraw from the world into our own little holy huddles. So you need to join a political party. You need to support a particular candidate, however imperfect. You need to go on a peaceful march. You need to join the police force or the military or take a government position. We need to do these things so that we can seek the peace and prosperity of the city that God has called us into exile. Our nation, right down to our own local community, ought to be a better place because you are a citizen who's faithfully following God in the midst of it. So, 
we are given some instructions by Jesus. We're given some guidance by Jesus. He tells us don't look upon politics simplistically. He says don't look upon politics cynically. But here's a third thing to write down. Don't view politics ultimately. Now what I mean is don't let politics have the ultimate expenditure of your energy, especially if you're not in office or running for office. Don't let politics be the ultimate way you define who you are. And don't let politics be the ultimate way you decide who you're going to get along with in the kingdom of God. Let's return to this text. Look at verses 15 through 17. Now, when the Pharisees and the Herodians wanted Jesus to answer this simplistic question, what did he say? Does anybody have a denarius? Let me see a denarius. And somebody gave them this. And he said, whose picture is on this coin? Well, they answered, it's Caesar's. And like I said, it was Tiberius Caesar whose image was on this idolatrous coin. And so Jesus says, all right, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. You see what he's doing here? He's holding up this coin with the image of Caesar, and he says, give back to Caesar that which has his image on it. And the implication is, therefore, give back to God what has his image on it. What has his image on it? You do. The book of Genesis tells us that God made us in his image. Romans chapter 8 says that in the salvation plan of God, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Caesar's image, God's image. Your heart and soul bears God's image, and it doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs, therefore, to God. Don't give to Caesar. Don't give to culture. Don't give to the political process, the heart and soul that belongs exclusively to God. Now, every one of us could very easily agree with that, but do we really? <laughs> Let me ask you three questions to interrogate your heart and soul at this point. Let's say we're all in this police interrogation room right now, and the bright lights are turned upon you, and the detectives are asking some questions. What are some questions that would help you investigate whether you are giving to Caesar, whether you are giving to culture, whether you are giving to the political process what only belongs to God? Let me ask you three questions. First of all, are you free to critique your candidate as easily as you support a given candidate? It is one thing to put a sign in your yard declaring which candidate you've decided will best represent your priorities this political season. It's an entirely different thing to say that your candidate is above and beyond criticism. I said earlier that for all practical purposes, we are a two-party political system in our culture, in our country. And that means that we are making a cold calculation, every one of us, when we go into the into, into the voting booth, we have decided that there are certain issues that in our hearts and minds have priority, which means that there are things that we wish were otherwise about a certain candidate or about a certain party, but we've decided those things are secondary to that which we regard as primary. Now, here's the thing. If you can't think of a thing that you wish was otherwise about your party or about your candidate, you've made an idol out of politics. You've given over to Caesar that which only belongs to God, your heart and your soul. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying that there's um, uh, never a time to support an imperfect party or an imperfect candidate. What I'm saying is that we need to have the freedom to criticize our chosen party or our chosen candidate just as easily as we support 
our chosen party, our chosen candidate. There's got to be a time from time to time where we have to understand that we have to be Nathan to King David. You know what I'm talking about? Nathan was a fan of King David, and yet when King David did something objectionable, Nathan was brave enough to speak truth to power. He was brave enough to criticize his favorite king. We need to make sure that we're ready to do that as well. Of course, we don't have the access to our candidates or maybe to the top levels of our political parties like Nathan had to King David, and yet we need to be ready to critique. We need to be ready to stand against that which is worth standing against, and if not, then we have decided that any sort of criticism, any sort of critique of our candidate is giving you know, care and comfort to the enemy. And we've, we've contributed to the polarization of our world instead of solving the polarization of our world. Here's a second question. Can you express your political convictions in such a way that doesn't ruin your witness? Can you express your political convictions in such a way that it doesn't ruin your witness. If you think that a certain election is so urgent or a certain cause is so compelling that it's worth even temporarily setting aside the Great Commission, then you're doing it wrong. Now, I'm certainly not saying that there are certain topics that we need to avoid so that we can have an opportunity to share our witness with somebody. I'm not saying that at all. I've seen people, uh, uh, good examples in my life, I'm sure you have too, of people who are so winsome and, and, and so uh, careful in how they talk about things that are important to them that they nevertheless leave room for uh, allowing them to talk with other people who disagree with them about Jesus as well. And then I've seen other people who uh, mouth off about a certain topic in such a way that brings them temporary satisfaction, but it just torches any witness that they could have possibly give about the Lord Jesus Christ to somebody. Even in an election year, the Great Commission still stands as your marching orders. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, and baptizing them. Here's a third question to determine if you've made politics ultimate. Do you find more connection with a non-believer of your same party than you do of a, with a believer of the opposite party? Do you find more connection with a non-believer of, of your same party than you do with a fellow believer of an opposite party? Now, one more time, in a two-party system, we are going to go into the voting booth making a cold calculation. We will determine that there are certain issues that are paramount to us, and therefore there are certain issues that are secondary to us. We wish they were otherwise, but we've decided to make them secondary. We've decided to do that. Other believers decide to do that as well. And when it gets difficult is when those other believers don't share the, the, the prioritizing that you have placed on the various issues. Uh, they might decide that something that you regard as secondary is paramount to them in this particular election. And something that they regard as paramount, you might regard as secondary. And it becomes a challenge. It really does. But even in the midst of an election year, Philippians chapter 2 still applies. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, it's almost as if sometimes I think that people think, well, Philippians chapter 2 is really nice, and we can get back to all of that after this urgent election is over. But right now, we used to really need to set Philippians chapter 2 aside, but it's still there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, don't suddenly become irrelevant in an election year. There we read, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but, but each of you must look to the interests of the others. 
Now, does that mean, again, that we're not allowed to discuss something that we know somebody else will disagree with? That's not the way to understand that at all. But the manner with which we talk about it, we're not allowed, according to this passage, to mock, to belittle, to mischaracterize the convictions that somebody else has simply because we disagree with them. Did you ever wonder why Jesus called Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot into the same body of the 12 apostles? I mean, here's Matthew in his former life, basically like the Herodians, collaborating with the hated Roman occupiers, collecting taxes, extorting people in the process, thieving from people. Simon the Zealot, why do we call him the Zealot? The Zealot was the name of a, basically a terrorist organization that made these little raids against Roman occupation. Now, when Simon the Zealot entered into the Twelve, he left behind his terrorist thinking and his terrorist behavior. When Matthew the tax collector was called by Jesus, he left behind his tax collection business with all its corruption and all this extortion, but do you think that their minds changed too, too much? I imagine they still had their sentiments for or against the Roman occupiers. It would have been a lot easier had Jesus just chose one or the other, but he chose both of them because both of them were loyal first to Jesus. We need to make sure that we are conducting our life groups in such a way, going about our church in such a way, conducting our family life in such a way that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector find a welcome home in our midst. So we need to ask ourselves these three questions to find out if we've made politics ultimate. If we're following Jesus, we're going to do as he did in the most contentious political issue of his day. He didn't, make, he didn't view politics simplistically, he didn't view politics cynically, and he didn't view politics ultimately either. We need to make sure that we're doing that as well. But before we close, I want a word with those of you who are not yet believers. And maybe you are not yet a believer because you've been dismayed by the way some of us as Christians have dealt with politics and talked about politics and it's dismayed you and made you want to walk away from it, what I would encourage you to do then is take a careful look at the Jesus in this passage. Not the way we imperfectly follow him. Look first at the Jesus in this passage. Look again at verse 15. When the Herodians and the Pharisees demanded that Jesus show his true colors and, and uh, answer the simplistic question, what did he do? Did he pull a quarter out of his pocket? No, he asked somebody for a quarter. Think about that. The Lord of the universe, the Savior of the world, he didn't have a day's wage to his name. He had to ask somebody to loan it to him so he could make this object story, this object lesson. That is so consistent with everything else we see about Jesus in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, who had all the prerogatives of God, emptied himself and became a human being and entered into our midst. And he was somebody who identified so closely with the poor and the downtrodden and the marginalized, so much so that he came to the cross and bore away the sins of those of us who were spiritually poor and spiritually downtrodden and spiritually marginalized. And he took it away on the cross, died for us, died while we were still enemies of his so that we might be united to him. That's the kind of Jesus I invite you to come to. And here's the thing. When you come to that kind of Jesus, 
The way he looked upon politics is now the way you have to look upon politics. And guess what? As a brand new believer, you're going to find you do it as imperfectly as the rest of us. But here's the thing. Let's all look to Jesus as our role model, as our example in every aspect of life, including how we deal with the most important political issues of our day. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon entitled, How to Be More Confident in Faith Conversations. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.